0: You're listening to audio from Praxis Church Kelowna. Praxis is a new church plant that exists to follow Jesus and make him known. If you are interested in finding out more or joining us in person, go to praxischurch.ca. Our reading this morning comes from Genesis 17 1 14. It says when abram was 99 years old the lord appeared to abram and said to him i am god almighty walk before me and be blameless that i may make a covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly then abram fell on his face and god said to him behold my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations no longer shall your name be called abram but your name shall be abraham for i have made you a father of a multitude of nations Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Well, thank you, band. Um, so great. Um, Norm, yeah, why don't you come on up? This morning, very excited to have a guest preacher. Norm Funk, some of you will know him if you spend any time around the Lower Mainland. Norm has, um, well, was my boss for a long time. Um, he planted the church Westside, which we planted out of. He since went on and planted a new church called Midtown, um, but been a part of planting around the Lower Mainland. Many churches have come out of Westside. You've been a, kind of a, a, a part of, a champion of church planting across Canada. I'm very honored to kind of follow in your footsteps. I've been blessed sitting under Norm's preaching for about a decade. And um, I'm very excited to have you with us here this morning. I know you're going to love it, and I um, couldn't think of a better text to give you. <laughs> yeah. It's awesome. awesome. Thank you. Can I pray for you? Yeah, we'll please, please do. Please do. <laughs> um, for, oh Lord, I thank you for your word and um, for this man and his love of your word, which you've given him. And I pray as he opens it up, Holy Spirit, you'd come and ignite the gifts that you've deposited in him. Um, Come and ignite the text that you spoke through men as they were carried along by the Spirit and that you've preserved for us and that you would sharpen us, equip us, um, build us up and leave us with a bigger picture of your son. Commit this work to you and, and norm to you in your great name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Josh. Well, good morning, everybody. It's
2: uh, great to be back with uh, with you again. My wife is here with me this time, although she's still at the hotel, um, and I'm going to run out of here between gatherings and go pick her up and bring her back, but she's really fired up. She hasn't been here before, and so she's excited to see what's going on here at Praxis. We love this ministry. We pray for you guys, and uh, always excited to um, hear about what's going on, and it's all been great. I know you have some things you're looking forward to and seeing where God's going to lead you in that, but just know that um, people down in the Lower Mainland are hearing about the good things going up here in Kelowna, and, and many, many people who are moving up here, um, if I ever have a chance to have a conversation with them, I always tell them you need to check out Praxis. I Got into a conversation yesterday here. I got up here Friday night and was in a conversation with a guy at Starbucks here. As I was going over my notes, and he saw that I had a Bible, and we got in a conversation. And I invited him here. I hope he shows up. So if you if you meet a guy named James, I'm not sure if James is here, but if you are here, um, good to have you with uh, with us and uh, here at Praxis. Um I used to work in a church in Burnaby way back, way back in the day, about a 1,000 years ago, and uh, I, was a, I was a high school youth pastor uh, for the most part. I was there about 10 years, did a little college ministry, but about year two or three into that uh, ministry time, I, part of my job description, what was added to it was I would become, or I became a uh, second preacher, so when the lead pastor, senior pastor wasn't around, I would preach... Um, And at the time, that was a big deal for me. I was a young guy in ministry. I was probably 30, 31 at the time. Church had thousands attending. uh, And so having the opportunity to preach uh, at that stage in my ministry life, it was was just an honor. It was a big deal. Um, And yet, over time, what became very apparent to me were two things. One, I was usually asked to preach on less than premium Sundays, like long weekends, for example. And um, and so uh, those weekends when most people would head out of town, even the lead pastor would head out of town, I was always scheduled on days like that. And I was also asked to preach most often on less than sexy texts. You know what I mean? Like, don't get me wrong. I love the Bible. I love every dot on every letter. I love every curve on every letter. It's always a joy to preach on any text from the Bible. But there are just certain texts that are more fun to preach on, teach out of than, than other ones. And, and what I began to realize over time, it really became kind of suspicious to me. It was, I was given texts oftentimes to teach on, full of just discussion and teaching on circumcision. It actually became a joke among staff. If you need a sermon on circumcision, call Norm on the next long weekend. He'll come and he'll teach on it. And so as I stand before you today, my life has gone full circle. Because on this long weekend in May, I invite you to, if you haven't already, to turn to Genesis 17, where we literally drop in on the genesis of circumcision. And so with that in mind, I know Josh has prayed for me already. I want to pray again. A prayer, actually, that my wife this morning sent me. She's a She's a great woman of God, loves the word. And, and so I just want to read what she sent me from Deuteronomy chapter 32, and I want this to be my prayer as we go into Genesis 17 together. "Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, My speech, my speech distil as the dew. Like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb, for I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. Amen. So let's go to our text, Genesis 17. Let me begin by simply reading um, verse 1 and then we'll stop there. But this is what we we read in verse 1 as I get to the text. Um, I'm in Exodus, so let me get to Genesis. That would help. Genesis 17, verse 1. We read, when Abram was 99 years old and the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. So just stop there. Uh, A great verse, um, fabulous verse to sort of get things rolling. I could spend 60 minutes on this verse alone. I I don't have that much time uh, today to unpack it, but let's at least unpack it a little bit. The first thing that we see when we go to verse 1, the first thing revealed is that Abraham or Abram at this stage was 99 years old. That's old today. I know we know that. But even though people were living longer then, it was still trending old. When we read that Abram was 99 years old, we're, as the reader, supposed to think, Abe is getting old. But his age jumps out even more because of the last verse of verse, or chapter 16. Take a look at how you ended last week. We read in verse 16 of chapter 16, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. And so how many years have gone by since chapter 16? 13. 13 years since Abram and Sarai took matters into their own hands. Remember, remember that from last week? Abe had sex with Hagar, Sarai's servant, and had a son named Ishmael. Um, This is an issue, as you know from last week, for many reasons. But the most significant is that it displayed a disbelief in God's faithfulness. It displayed a disbelief in God's power, along with a, uh, a display of conforming to the patterns of this world, Uh, To put it another way, it wasn't a God-led decision, what they did back in chapter 16. It was a decision of the flesh. Keep that in mind as we go, more on that a bit later. What we saw in the aftermath last week of that decision, however, is God's sweet abundant grace, with Hagar especially. God sees Hagar. God meets with Hagar after she and Ishmael had been sent away And what God does to Hagar is he promises her a multitude, and in response, she does something that no one else in the Bible, male or female, does. What did she do? Well, she gave God a name, Elroy, the God who sees. This picture, it's a, a sweet picture of restorative grace and healing and comfort. That grace, and why I take you back there, that grace continues in chapter 17. But what we're supposed to see first as we go into this chapter are the consequences that come with our sin. Or if you like, the consequences that come with the decisions of the flesh. In Abram's and Sarai's case, Ishmael was certainly a consequence. It's a consequence that the world is dealing with today, the conflict between the Jewish people and the Arab people. But in addition to that consequence, 13 years of silence. There there is nothing to suggest as we get into chapter 17 that God has met with, spoke with, or visioned himself at that time or during that time with Abram. 13 years. That's not nothing. 99 years old is not nothing 13 years is not nothing the question is what was god doing during this time was god punishing punishing them was god being pouty was god being passive aggressive well i'm talking like a fool to even suggest that but he was teaching them and he was teaching them something that only 13 years of silence could teach. Uh, One of the most well-known events in the Gospels during the ministry life of Jesus is the raising of Lazarus by Jesus, the brother of Mary and Martha. Uh, If you know that event, you'll know that news came to Jesus that Lazarus was sick. Lord, the one you love is ill, is how he hears about it. People know that Jesus loved Lazarus. So what follows that is one of the biggest theological hiccups in the Bible. You can read it on the screen in John 11, 5, and 6. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. This makes no sense. What this should read, if it were to make sense to us is he heard that Lazarus was ill, so he dropped everything he had had going on. He hightailed it to Lazarus because he loved Lazarus and he wanted to be with Lazarus and keep him from further illness. That's what it should read. But instead it read, reads he stayed two days longer in that place. And do you know what happened? If you've read the story, you know what happened. Lazarus, whom Jesus loved died, and Mary and Martha, whom Jesus loved, were overcome with grief. And both sisters said to Jesus when he arrived, if you showed up earlier, he would not have died. Suggesting what? Suggesting now that he's dead, all bets are off. You could have helped Jesus if if you got here when he was sick, But now that he's dead, you're no help to us. That's what they believed. Which is why, in love, Jesus stayed two days longer. Because there was something they needed to learn about Jesus that only a delay would teach them that even death does not stand in the way of the Almighty. As Jesus says, look, Mary, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. They needed to be taught that, that even death doesn't stand in the way of the Almighty. And and Praxis Church, do you know what else doesn't stand in the way of the Almighty? Old age and and barrenness, which takes us back to our text. Put your pretty eyes back in verse 1. Where we read, the Lord appeared to Abram, 99-year-old Abram, 13 years since Genesis 16, 89-year-old Sarai, and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Now the book of Genesis, obviously, as as we know, is the book of beginnings. It's the book of firsts. And we see three firsts in verse 1. Verse 1. Let me highlight them for you. The, the first one is the Lord appeared to Abram. This is a first. This has never happened before. What we read before this is the Lord speaking to Abram. We, we, we read of the, of the Lord appearing in a vision to Abram, but nothing like this. This is a first. This is what scholars refer to as a theophany or a Christophany. It's a manifestation of God. God. The second first in verse one is that God reveals a new name to him, God Almighty, El Shaddai. Last week, El Roy. This week, El Shaddai. Now, if you ever studied the names of God, it is as important to know not only what the name means, but when the names are given. For when God reveals one of his names, He always reveals it in light of the current situation, something to chew on this week individually or perhaps in your community groups, and and that is why does God reveal himself this way to Abraham at this point in time uh, in light of the current situation? Well, let let me help you um, as you wrestle with that with a very average illustration. I am very well known for average illustrations, so let me give you one. Let's say you're on a plane, you're flying, and you start feeling sick. You start feeling clammy, you start feeling sick to your stomach, your heart's racing, and because you're on a plane, you can't just get in your car and drive to a hospital, so you're feeling out of sorts, you're feeling very vulnerable, and someone comes up to you on the plane and says, I'm a doctor. Tell me what's going on. At that moment in time, you'd feel what? You'd feel some measure, if not a lot, of relief. You're a doctor? Fantastic. Thank you for revealing that to me. But if you're on a plane and a librarian came up to you and said, I'm a librarian, tell me what's going on, your response would be, Get away from me, librarian. But if you were in a library, a librarian would be absolutely fantastic. She'd be perfect, he'd be perfect. If she revealed, he revealed that to you. Now, I told you this was a very average illustration. And this is where the illustration begins to break down because God is both doctor and librarian, as it were. But my point is, there is a reason that God appeared to Abram after 13 years with the last recorded event being that saga between Hagar and Ishmael and all of that. And he reveals himself now as God Almighty. We'll come back to that as well. The third first from verse 1 is God gave conditions to Abram. The condition was walk before me and be blameless. Up to this point, if you've been here for the series or studied this on your own, what we've seen with Abram, with certainly some stops and starts along the way, is belief. He's been called to believe. And the big highlight of that, the crescendo of that, which shows up in Romans chapter 4, is seen in Genesis 15, 6. Abram believed, and God counted it to him as righteousness. That's the pinnacle moment. But now we have conditions. Walk before me and be blameless. This is a first. But not only is this a first... This is the gospel. Now, when I say that, some of you may go, well, how is this the gospel? Well, let me, com- let me explain what I mean by that. The-, the gospel says, as I hope most of us know, but if you don't, let me share the gospel with you. The gospel says we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and work of Jesus alone. In an- and it's our faith alone In Christ alone, in response to grace alone, that is what? Genesis 15, 6. It's counted to us as righteousness. Faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. We receive righteousness because of that faith. That's the gospel. But our faith, please hear me on this, because this helps us understand Genesis 17. Our faith... Here's a big $1,000 word that appropriates that grace. It's the channel. So we are given grace. How do we get that grace? Through faith. We appropriate that grace through faith. That grace that appropriates, excuse me, our faith that appropriates that grace never stands alone. Faith, like a seed, produces fruit, it produces a certain kind of walk. And how we walk before God in response to his grace is evidence. It bears testimony of our God-given righteousness. That is the gospel. And that's what you and I have seen as we look through the book of Genesis over the last four or five chapters. In the New Testament, Paul sums this up with just a couple of verses. What God has done in this book of beginnings, he's used the last couple of chapters, he's used 25 years since the call of Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12 to paint in vivid pictures, living color what the gospel is. More on this in a moment as well. God continues in verse two. Let me read it. That I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Just stop there again. This too is interesting, verse 2. After 13 plus years, God is now returning and going to make good on his promises given back in chapter 15 to make Abram's offspring like the stars in heaven And yet God says now, look at the verse again. I want you to see it. Walk before me and be blameless that, or so that, I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. This is interesting. Because this seems like an add-on. Because the promises of the covenant that have already been given have been given and there was none of this. There was... There was no call to works. There was no call to anything, just believe. So what do we do with this? Because, God, you gave your promise back in 12. You, you entered this covenant with Abram back in chapter 15, and now this. So what do, what do we do with this? Well, here's what I think. Take that for what it's worth. First, as I touched on, when we enter a covenant relationship with God there will be fruit that is produced as a sign of that covenant. Just talked about that a moment ago. And yet, it's probably not insignificant that God withheld specific duties until long after Abram's belief was evident to demonstrate that, that works are not the basis of the covenant, but a byproduct of it. And it's taken a few chapters to paint that picture, but like I said, what we've seen with Abram up to this point is belief, right? That's it. You're righteous now. I count that as righteous, but now you start seeing fruit, but what is being very clear to us so far is that, again, our righteousness comes by belief, so that's the first thing that I think we're seeing here in verse 2, but the second, and I need you to, uh, to give me some grace in this, because there's a chance I'm reading too much into this, but I'm going to share it with you anyways because I have support in the rest of the scriptures. But secondly, what possibly could be going on when we understand the context of this passage is that it's possible to enter a covenant relationship with God, and we have, if you're in Christ, a new covenant in his blood. So it's possible to enter a covenant relationship with God, But never enjoy the benefits of that covenant because of how you're living. I think I have support for that in the scriptures. No peace, no joy, no contentment, no fruit of the Spirit, only the grieving and quenching of the Spirit. You've experienced grace, you have the Spirit. But you're grieving the spirit, you're quenching the spirit. No joy, no peace, no contentment, no self-control, none of that. Grief quenching, but you've experienced grace, you've gone through chapter 15, but like Abram, you're walking according to the flesh as he did in chapter 16. And and, and the reality is there is nothing more miserable than a Christian living a chapter 16 life. It's miserable. And again, <laughs> sometimes it takes 13 years to figure that out. You know what I mean? And praise God that his patience isn't like yours and mine. But I think what's happened is that the 13 years has taught him something that he was now ready to hear. And when he did, take a look at verse 3. Abram fell in his face. Which is the right response. This is reverence. Uh, this is worship. Uh, th- this is humility. Although, as you will see next week, he still has much to learn because Abram falls on his face again, or in that case, Abraham falls on his face again in verse 17, but it's out of laughter and disbelief. So he's still a work in progress, but this is a sign of reverence and worship and humility. This is also a demonstration that in love, God waited, and in grace, God appeared. And this is what God said to him. Take a look at verses 4 to 8. Behold, look, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. I mean, when you consider what's gone on, wow. I mean, how, how absolutely great is this? I mean, where do we begin? Well, let me highlight a couple of things that jump out of verses 4 to 8. First off, just note, God ups his game here in verse 4 when he says in verse 4 that Abram would be the father of a multitude of nations. Back in chapter 12, when he first spoke to Abram, And called him, he said there that Abram would be a great nation. But now the father of a multitude of nations. What's going on? Well, I think when you put it together, God is saying that he would be the the father of a nation made up of a multitude of nations. Sounds a lot like the church, doesn't it? Second, just note that he changes his name to Abraham. Abram means mighty or exalted father. Hard enough to live up to that name. At 99, when you have one kid through the servant of your wife and your wife can't stand her or the kid, but you're a mighty father, you're an exalted father, tough to live up to that name, but now his name is changed to father of many nations. But so guaranteed is this promise that God speaks of it in present tense terms in verse 5 where he says, I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. And he adds, kings will come from you. That's awesome. But Praxis, let me ask you a question. What kind of God can do this? An almighty one. An almighty one. Can drop into this situation Give these promises and give them in present tense terms. Third, his covenant with Abraham would be an everlasting one. And God would be God to him and his offspring to everlasting. And fourth, he would be given land. All the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, a a reminder of what he promised back in chapter 15. Land is great, isn't it? Don't we love land? I love land. I don't have any, but I love land. And I I think there's a reason we love land. I'm convinced, and I mean this with all of my heart, I believe we love land because we're made from dirt. I, I think there's something in us. We go, man, I want land. And I think there's something that God says when he says this that sort of resonates with us. I'll give you land. Kings will come from you. Everlasting. Father of nations. Have you ever traveled somewhere or bought something or entered into an agreement with someone and it turned out to be less than you hoped for? Um, We all have, right? Um, Kind of a silly question. That's not what's going on here. A, A nation of nations, kings, land, everlasting, offspring. And speaking of Abraham's offspring, Matthew's gospel begins, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. His offspring would produce the Messiah. Take a look at what Paul writes in Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ, which is why, if you have a question, which is why and only why these promises can be deemed everlasting. For they all find their fulfillment in Jesus. So verses 4 to 8, where are we? Verses 4 to 8, this is what God would do. And what God would do is fantastic. Fantastic. Verses 9 to 14 is what Abraham was called to do in response. Let me read the last portion of our text this morning. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be noted a sign, a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money, if you have questions about that, just ask your CG leaders this week, shall, shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Verse 14, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of the foreskin shall be cut off. Pardon the pun. (laughs) But it's there for a reason. Note it. That's not an accidental statement. Because now we start getting under, what what is this Christian fascination with Circumcision. Just note it. Will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So, what do we get here? Um, well, this seems rather simple. If you think about it, in verses four to eight, this is what God would do, and what God would do is unbelievable and in return what did he have to do abraham and all males with you is all males with him is are to get circumcised again this seems rather simple it's, it seems it doesn't seem to, to match up with what they're what they're being given so we must dig deeper first off this is this isn't the only thing that abraham must do the chapter begins with the command walk before me and be blameless. Which means that he walk with purity and consistency and holiness. No more chapter 16. I'm God Almighty. I made a covenant with you, but walk before me and be blameless. But this call in verse 1, to walk before him with blamelessness and the later command to be circumcised in verses 9 to 14 are intertwined with the command to be circumcised being a sign of the covenant that he had entered. In other words, circumcision was a symbol of his relationship to God and signified what his moral conduct should be. And what is that? That he no longer walk according to the flesh, but be cut off from the flesh and walk now in blamelessness. And if you know anything about God, it's just like God to do something like this. Because God loves symbols, loves them. Symbols that remind and point to something bigger. In the garden, what did he have? A tree of life. In his covenant with Noah, he gave him a rainbow. Oil. Is used throughout the scriptures as a symbol of commissioning, also a picture of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Jesus gives us a feast to remember his death by, and given the sacrament, given the sacrament, he does a baptism to display what Jesus has done for us and who we are now in Jesus. And now, here. In chapter 17 of Genesis, Abraham is given the sign of circumcision to remind him and to testify to the world that he has been cut off from the world and set apart for God. In the world, but not of the world. It it would be a daily reminder to him and to the, the rest of the men of the covenant they had entered, and every time a husband and wife had sex, it would be a reminder to her too. Forgive me if you think I'm being too graphic, but it's not a coincidence that the penis that was used to produce Ishmael in chapter 16 was not circumcised. That's not a coincidence. And the penis that will help produce Isaac, the son of promise, in chapter 21 was. It's just like God to do something like that. Paul writes of this, if you think I'm making this up, in Galatians chapter 4. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, Ishmael, Isaac, is coming, one by a slave woman, that's Hagar, and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh. They took matters into their own hands, right? Chapter 16. While the son of the free woman was born through promise. Had to be 99 years old, 89 years old. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. Now, you, brothers, sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time, who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. And what does Galatians 5 say? The flesh wages war against what? The spirit. Keep on going. So also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. In other words, cut the works of the flesh off. Is circumcision a requirement today? Well, well, no. The very first church council written about in Acts 15 made that very clear Some say baptism today has replaced circumcision. I I can kind of see it, but there are some significant differences. For one, circumcision is for men, obviously. Men alone, where baptism is for men and women. Circumcision took place when a boy was eight days old. Baptism, as I see it, is for believing men and women who have expressed their faith. Baptism is a public sign. Circumcision is a private one. Circumcision was a sign of God's covenant with Abraham, where I would argue in the New Testament, it is the Lord's Supper that is a sign of the new covenant. But, on the other hand, circumcision is a requirement for all of us today, men and women. But obviously not a circumcision of the foreskin, but a circumcision of the heart. As Paul writes again in Romans 2 this time, for no one is a Jew, a true Jew, Jew, following in the faith of Father Abraham. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Why praise from God? Because God is the one who sees our hearts, And so the praise is from God, not man. But here's the thing, praxis, this has always been the case. This has always been the attempt. This isn't just a New Testament thing. Remember, circumcision is a sign. It's a symbol. Jeremiah says this. It's not on the screen, but you can note it. Jeremiah 4.4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. Again, Jeremiah 4.4, which is why Paul adds, and Galatians 5, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith, which is counted as righteousness, working through love. Christians following in the faith of Abraham are called by God's grace and empowerment to put to death the deeds of the flesh, to cut them off, to live circumcised lives. And if we don't, to not is to risk being cut off from the people of God. Which is why that is not simply a pun. We're accidentally there in the end of our text. We're to circumcise our hearts, responding to the grace given to us by faith, credited with righteousness, To not do that, to not receive the grace of God through Jesus, his son, is to be cut off from God's people. I need to begin wrapping up. Here's how I want to wrap up. Uh, I want to leave you with some questions um, coming out of all of this. And I I don't want to rush through this. Um, I want to see the application that possibly... God wants to do with this. Here's the first question. Anyone living in a season of wait right now? Waiting is tough, isn't it? Anyone living in a season of wait right now Where, where God seems really quiet? I mean, we sing the song... Those who wait upon the Lord, our strength will be renewed. We'll fly like wings of eagles, that kind of thing. It's a truth, but it's tough. Waiting is tough. Anyone living in a season of wait right now, what is God teaching you? What is being revealed to you? What What is being revealed by you? Contentment, peace, or agitation, frustration? What's being revealed? What is God wanting to teach you? In this season of wait, what is God teaching you that only a time of waiting can teach you? Do you believe that God will wait because he loves you? Or do you only believe God loves you if he responds immediately to you? Second question. Anyone not enjoying the fruit of God's covenant promises because you're not living in light of the covenant that you've entered? That perhaps you're living a Genesis 16 life instead of walking before Him in in purity and holiness? Like I said, nothing more miserable than a Genesis 16 Christian. Anyone here needing to cut something off? To circumcise a sin that has you entangled? How's your week been? How, How was last night? Anyone being tempted right now to take matters into your own hands and, and God is saying to you, I am God Almighty, trust me. I, I don't say this to scare you, but to remind you that taking matters into our own hands comes with consequences. Which leads to one last question. Anyone, anyone wondering if past decisions are too big even for him to make good then I call you to come to the one who came to Abram after his and Sarai's disobedience and doubled down on his promises you see praxis where the works of the flesh increase the grace of almighty God abounds more and more amen so I invite you to come to him come to him. As we go into a time of response, come to him. And finally, as I close, as you do come to him with all of this talk about flesh and all of this talk about things being cut off, I call you as we respond to look to the one who became flesh and was cut off so that we could be brought in. The one whose perfect blamelessness as he walked before God Almighty who sent him in love is given to cover our works of the flesh. Come to him. Come to him. Let me pray. And and Spirit of God, I, I pray that 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 reality of the person and work of Jesus would land on good soil this morning. That that Jesus, your perfect blamelessness as you walked in perfect obedience before your Father, doing and saying everything he told you to do and say, could be ours, is ours. By faith, through the grace offered us in Jesus. And so I pray for those who, even as Cole said earlier in the gathering, that are carrying heavy burdens today, overwhelmed today, would receive grace upon grace today. I pray for those, all of us, can reflect in our lives and think, what needs to be put aside? What needs to be cut off? What has entangled me? Where am I taking things and living according to the flesh, not trusting in God Almighty, thinking that this is too much for you, even God, I pray that they would turn their eyes to you as well. And as we partake today, and we take part in this feast that helps us and reminds us of the sweet, sacrificial death of you, Jesus, that this would be a precious time of ministry, that this wouldn't be something that we simply do and then move on with our days, but this would be a time where the Spirit rests heavy on us, and great and sweet times of ministry would take place. Restore us, revive us, I pray, in Jesus' name.